As we come now to the Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel in chapter 18? That's 2 Samuel chapter 18. And as you turn there, would you pray with me? Lord God, you have spoken. By your word, you've revealed yourself to us and helped us to see things that are true of us as well. Lord, would you help us now to come to your word with humble hearts. Help us now to really listen to your word, to believe and to be changed by it. Uh, we do trust you and ask your grace by your spirit in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. And this is Second Samuel in chapter 18. I want to read this morning these first 18 verses. So we'll begin here in verse 1, Second Samuel 18, beginning in verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they won't care about us. If half of us die, they won't care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. And so the king stood at the side of the gate while the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then didn't you strike him to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. 
On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. And Joab said, I won't waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. This is God's word. We have taken three months of Sunday mornings to get to this point. For Absalom, this process has taken about 10 years. Ever since King David's oldest son, Amnon, you remember, violated his sister Tamar, and David did nothing about it, it seems that Absalom has had it out for his father David, and war has been brewing in Israel ever since. Now, at this point, the word of the Lord through the prophet Nathan, which was that the sword would not depart from the house of David, that word is now coming to fulfillment. And what was once just a simmer on the stove is now a full-on rolling boil. Absalom here uh, gathered all of his army, all of Israel, to fight against David and his servants in war. And I know this is Veterans Day, and so some of you may know firsthand the high cost and great tragedy that war often brings. Uh, the loss in this situation uh, is great. You may have noticed that 20,000 men died in just this one battle. The battle had spread over the whole countryside and even into the forests of Ephraim. It says even that the forests devoured people. Uh, and when I first read that in my head, I, I think of the Wizard of Oz where they're throwing apples at Dorothy and the Scarecrow. Not quite the same. This is not a magic forest. It just means that the terrain itself was treacherous enough to cause loss during the war. And as this battle continues, the author then zooms our attention in on a specific moment so that we can focus on the heart of the matter, which is Absalom. Now, you'll remember 
King David, who is Absalom's dad, is not fighting in this army. It says this at the beginning. He stays in the city. So instead, he's divided his military section into three commands, uh, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. And he's ordered all three of these commanders in the hearing of everyone, whatever happens in this battle, guys, deal gently with the young man, Absalom. I want you to protect him, even though he has become my mortal enemy. In other words, go easy on my kid. Now, in reading that, we need to pay very careful attention when we're reading the scriptures. So I guess that's true anytime we read anything, but especially when we read God's word. We want to notice what it says and what it doesn't say. So the author here does not tell us explicitly if it was good or right for David to ask this of them. I'm not sure what David expected them to do if they encountered Absalom or if they had won the battle and now tried to figure out what to do with Absalom afterward. Would they have put him in prison or try to talk some sense into him? I mean, those things did not seem to have work, worked in the past 10 years. So I don't know what he expected to do. All we know is just what he told them, what David ordered them to do. But the author hints in the text that the Lord himself is doing something other than what David has asked. In this very strange and famous account, it's in verse 9. Let me read it again. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. It's almost a funny scene. If you don't think about the gravity of the situation, this man stuck with his head in a tree. It doesn't tell us the details of exactly how that happened. Maybe Absalom was turned around looking back after people were chasing him, or maybe he just missed, misjudged the height of the tree. Uh, for whatever reason, as he's riding under this, the thick branches of, of the tree, his head seems to get stuck in a, in a fork of the branches. Perhaps, probably so, his very long hair, you remember, that he was uh, famous for, got tangled so in the branches that even his scalp was being pulled on. So now he's struggling and left dangling there in that tree. And he's been riding, up until that point, uh, a mule. That sounds a little strange to us. You know, why not a horse? But a mule at their time was a mount of royalty. Uh, this is the same thing that Jesus had done, by the way, when he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He's coming in on a donkey. Uh, so same situation in here. In other words, the kingdom that Absalom had worked so hard to take is now leaving him. He rode under a tree on a mule, and now that mule has trotted off without him. And his crown is now made of twigs and leaves. He's now at the mercy of the tree, and he's like a child that can't get down out of his booster seat but is done with dinner. And Absalom is left with his feet just kicking in the air. 
He's described here in this verse as being suspended between heaven and, and earth. Uh, it reminds us like a, uh, a puppet or a marionette is suspended, sort of in that way. The Hebrew that's translated in my text, suspended, can, is literally translated, he was given or he was placed there in that tree. So this was no oops. This was no accident. Absalom has now been placed there after all the power he has scraped and scrambled for. He is now vulnerable and entirely exposed. So there he is in the tree. One of David's men now happens to see what's going on, and he does nothing to Absalom because of the order that David had given to de deal gently with Absalom, the young man. And so this, this unidentified uh, man goes off and reports to his commander, to Joab, and Joab decides to do differently, and he goes to kill Absalom. Now again... The, authors does not, the author does not give us an evaluation on that, does not tell us whether that act was right or good in the eyes of the Lord, just tells us what Joab does. Joab finds Absalom in a tree alive. He says, I don't want to waste time with this, and he kills Absalom very dramatically with three, three javelins in the chest. And he's joined by ten men who strike him down. Absalom, this man who once stole the hearts of Israel as their self-appointed king, is now pierced through his own heart to death. And with this, the war is over. It's all done, at least the big parts of it. They blow the trumpets, they gather the troops, and they say, you can all go home, except, of course, they're going to have to deal with the fallout of all of this. And there will be a lot of fallout. The kingdom of Israel is going to have a long road of recovery here. And King David is going to be heartbroken at the news of his son. We'll see that next week in our, our final week here in 2 Samuel. But the effects of all of this, you can see the effect of sin is truly devastating. And in the remainder of our time, I want us to look here at what remains of Absalom after he dies. Because the author seems to think that that's important for us to notice. He gives us a little flashback here in this very last verse. We've seen the battle. We've seen Absalom die. He is now dead. And then verse 18, we flash back to earlier in his life. You'll see it. Uh, now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. It says there that he doesn't have any sons. It earlier mentioned that he had three sons. Those sons must have died, it seems to be the case. And now Absalom wants somehow to be remembered since he doesn't have any kids to pass on. So what he does here is different than we tend to do in, in funerals and remembrances and memorials. 
That's not what's happening here. Absalom, in his lifetime, is trying to establish a legacy, something that he sets up for himself. What he wants, then, is a pillar in the Valley of Kings so that he will be remembered for all of his greatness. And the author then leaves us as a reader with a lingering question just hanging in the air. Is that how we should see Absalom? Are we to see him as a great and honorable king that followed the Lord? I mean, Absalom started with such hopeful beginnings. I mean, he worked for justice to defend and protect what had, uh, his sister Tamar and what had happened to her. He was defending the vulnerable to do what David had not done. But over the course of time, we saw in Absalom the darker sides of his heart. The darkness had come to light as he began to morph into someone who began to seek revenge and murder and conspiracy and backstabbing and hostile takeover and civil war. Absalom's main concern, we can now see, was not mainly his sister Tamar or even the good of the people of Israel or even the Lord himself. His main concern is Absalom. He wants to be amongst the kings. We can see then that Absalom's core drive is his own pride. And even though Absalom has played a role in the Lord enacting his sovereign purposes for the Lord's good justice, Absalom now is still responsible for the things that he does. He's still responsible for the choices he has made and for the people that he has hurt, and all of this is now tainted by his own pride. And of course, everybody knows where pride goes. I think there's a famous saying about that, that pride goeth before a fall. It comes from the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16. And we said this earlier in our confession, Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It also says in Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Pride then does not only lead to a fall. Pride leads to total destruction because it's an abomination. And we can see that in Absalom's demise. Absalom, at the, his last moments, is hung in a tree and then buried under a heap of stones. Both of those, by the way, are a mark of one who is cursed by God, one who is under the wrath of God. This, then, is where pride goes, to the wrath of God. 
And if we think that that sounds extreme or that to be cursed is going too far, that means that we don't understand how truly evil and wicked pride is. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, a very readable book, um, writes about this in a chapter that he calls The Great Sin. Here he'll call pride uh, enmity, in other words, war or hostility. Hear what he has to say then about pride. He says, the Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You might find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness amongst drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity or war. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say that they believe in God and yet appear to themselves as very religious? I am afraid it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God. But really, all the time, they are imagining how he approves of them and how he thinks that they are far better than ordinary people. Those are striking words from Lewis that a prideful heart cannot know the true God because a prideful heart sees himself as superior to God. It sits above God and others and sees itself as a self-appointed king. Now, if at this point you think that I am mostly talking about other people and that this does not apply to you, there's a chance that I am especially talking to you and that your heart is so swollen by pride that you can't even see it. Do you find that you sometimes stew on the sins of your family members and roll around in your mind just how wrong they were? That's the pride of a superior heart. Do you find that you get angry when someone makes a mistake on your menu order or your cell phone bill that's the pride of a su superior heart. 
And do you find that you avoid asking for help when you really need it because you don't want to bother people or you don't want to be embarrassed? That's the pride of a superior heart. Do you find that you rarely give a thought to the poor, to the needy, to the marginalized, to the imprisoned, as long as they're not bothering you? That's the pride of a superior heart. And even after hearing all these things I've just mentioned, do you still think that you are without pride because you are mostly a good person? That's the pride of a superior heart. Pride invades us all. It invades me. And it is easy to look at the tragic pride of Absalom and just say to ourselves, what a shame. It is far more difficult to look at him and see myself as potentially moving toward a similar end to be under the curse and wrath of God. Some accuse Christians of talking about sin too much. And maybe some of us do, I suppose. But some will say, you know, life is too short to sweat the small stuff. After all, God is love, isn't he? And he is love. God is love beyond our wildest imaginations. And because he is love, he also hates sin beyond our wildest imaginations. So it is no good to try to pet a grizzly bear and call it a puppy. Just as it is no good to just cross out the 20,000 men who uh, gave their lives in this battle and just call it a result of a minor disagreement. When we talk about sin, then the goal is, is not just to spook us or to beat us over the head with our own shame. The goal here is to, to waken us up, to open our eyes so that we will confess our true heart before God, to see our deep need for Jesus, and then only then will we see our real desire to come to Jesus for help. Only then can we ever come to love Jesus more than we love ourselves. And when we do come to him, we find that he has already lavishly poured out his love for us. That Jesus has put himself under a curse in our place, that he was hanged on a tree, that he was buried under the heap of stones to redeem us, to cleanse us, to bring back all who believe in him and trust on him. So now, for us, if we are followers of Jesus, ones who are saved by him, Part of being a disciple of Jesus then means that we make war, but not on each other and not on God. We make war then on our own pride 
We want to kill the enmity that is between us and God and between us and others and put aside our superior hearts out of love. The path of Jesus also leads us to death, but in a different way than Absalom's path led to death. Jesus tells us this familiar part, Matthew 16, verse 24. He says this, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The call of Jesus is extreme. It is a life of denial of self. And this is something that we can only do by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and yet, while a life like this is difficult, it is also so worth it. Because when I look at the account of Absalom, who was a complex man, I don't come away thinking that I want to become like him. I don't want to become like him in his death. I don't want to become like him in his life. It is far better for us to pursue a life that looks like Jesus giving up our lives for the sake of others so that his name would be set up in honor in the Valley of Kings. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, these things are difficult for us, but would you help us to really set aside our pride, to put it to death, to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after you because your ways are good. And Lord, we need your great mercy in order to do this. Would you help us to be a people that looks like you? And we ask for your grace and power as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.